As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. The animating emotion in the country and in both parties was anger, rage, and retribution. I heard Al Gore say after the cam actually it was still during the campaign, he said that one of the more insightful interviews he saw was a man on the street interview where a blue-collar, white, male, Democrat, lifelong, was asked how he could be supporting Donald Trump. And the man said, well, the way I see it, our country's got cancer and Donald Trump's just the chemotherapy we need. So when people believe that their own country's leaders and both parties are no longer on their side, then voting becomes strictly an act of protest. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Martin O'Malley, the former governor of Maryland and former mayor of Baltimore, is working hard all around the country to help Democratic candidates. His organization is called Win Back Your State. During the last 10 years, Republicans obtained far too much power, particularly in state governments, and the negative consequences have been far-reaching. The fight going into 2018 is to undo that as much as possible, especially in the run-up to the next census and redistricting. And I'm glad that Governor O'Malley is campaigning hard for Democrats. O'Malley, who ran for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2016, but was shorted on attention, is really worth listening to, especially if you're not familiar with his career fighting for public safety and progressive values in Baltimore and Maryland statewide. I was very happy to have a chance for an in-depth talk with Governor O'Malley. We spoke about his history, about leadership, race, and politics. I was impressed. He cares about people and policy and good governance. It reminded me how good it would be to have a Democrat running the country again. Listen to the interview, and let's all work together with him to take back our states. So now, our sponsor, and then my interview with Martin O'Malley and Win Back Your State. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. My, my name is Martin O'Malley. I was the 61st governor of Maryland. Prior to that, I served two terms as mayor of the city of Baltimore. Prior to that, I served two terms on the Baltimore City Council. I grew up in the Washington suburbs, one of six kids in a household where we were taught that politics is actually a noble service to others, and the only thing wrong with it is not enough good people try. So at a very early age, when I was going to Catholic University here, I went to work um, pretty much full-time as a volunteer for a totally unknown senator from Colorado named Gary Hart. My who, senator. Who was your senator. And uh, going down once a week to the Hart headquarters turned into three days a week, then four, then five. And soon I was going to work on the campaign more than I was going to class. Uh, I was doing distance learning before the internet. And then I went out to Iowa for Senator Hart. And we had the miraculous 16% finish there, which one point above threshold, but it was enough to come in second, beat expectations and bounce out of there. And then I went to a number of states and really that experience opened up for me the truth that, you know, you don't have to be a millionaire or a billionaire to be involved in politics, to make a difference. That's a belief I've carried with me for a long time. I'm a lawyer by training. I was a prosecutor right out of law school in Baltimore for a couple of years and then was had my own practice 
during my time on the city council. And right now I'm teaching a little bit. I'm going back and forth up to Harvard this year at the Kennedy School, writing a book about uh, smarter governing, a practitioner's guide about data, the map, the method in the information age, and uh, the importance of having a radical commitment really in political terms to openness and transparency. I have recommitted my own leadership back to the purpose of helping good candidates win back their state. I believe that in order to save our democracy, we have to win back our individual states. There's 36 of them up this year, races for governor and state legislature. Since Donald Trump's election, I've campaigned now, I think, in 25 different states for probably 40 different candidates. And a lot of them are winning, most of them, in fact. It's a, it's quite a biography. And for someone who is new to politics or thinking about getting into it, it's, I think, hard to look at someone who's been governor and been mayor and think of them as a regular person. But you got going just like the rest of us do. Carrie Hart also pulled me into politics. And, mm. and he was my, my senator. I grew up in Boulder. Oh, and, that. and my brother went to Iowa. In 87, I was at Yale and ran Yale students for heart until the, Did you? the catastrophe where he had to drop out of the race. Yeah. So, the yeah. unmentionable, huh? Yeah. For me, he inspired me in a similar way than a lot of other people found for Dean or Obama or right. Sanders or whoever. Yeah, that was, O'Malley, was Whoever inspired them along the way. Right. A friend of mine, uh, Michael Drain, had gone to high school together here at Gonzaga. And one of the interesting things about going to high school just eight blocks north of the United States Capitol building is that every freshman that enters that first class knows exactly where they stand in their political beliefs. <laughs> so uh, he, Michael and I, shortly after we had graduated from Gonzaga in conversations, came to the conclusion that Ronald Reagan was putting our country on a real bad course. It was a course that celebrated greed above our common good. And we decided the only way to make him a one-term president was to uplift and to nominate a new generation of leadership. And we concluded that neither Mondale nor Glenn or Alan Cranston could uh, provide that contrast and only Gary Hart could. But I threw myself into reading every white paper uh, and he was prolific, uh, very intelligent guy, did a lot of thinking, a lot of writing. And um, one of the things he said in that year was that America needs to throw herself into a commitment to a new energy policy because our dependence on foreign oil is putting us on a path where if we don't change things quickly, we are going to see our nation bogged down in a series of desert wars. Some of them fought under false pretenses, but the undercurrent for all of them will be securing our supply of oil. I was impressed with his ability to look over the horizon of where our country was going and where the global economy was going. They mockingly referred to him and some other colleagues in the Senate as Atari Democrats because he was saying, look, we're embarking on a new industrial revolution. And the essence of this one is really about information and technology. It's not about video games and Atari. He was right about the, the huge shift that was coming. So that's what first attracted me to him. And then after uh, 1987, while you were coordinating at Yale, I was coordinating here at home. I was still finishing up Catholic. You had one more year after I came home from Iowa, Oklahoma, and Moscone Center and all of that good stuff. And then out of the law school basement at University of Maryland at Baltimore, I coordinated mid-Atlantic states for him. And uh, that was a pretty traumatic thing to throw that much energy and that much belief into a candidate and then for Hart to have to pull out in the wake of the, the Donna Rice incident and, and all that went with that. But when he got back in, I became his national field director, and it was my responsibility to get us on the ballot in a whole lot of states that had big mammoth signature requirements and to do it over Christmas. <laughs> and so I spent my first Christmas away from home after he got into that race. Nathaniel, I was actually uh, as disappointing as uh, Senator Hart's uh, presidential campaigns were in their end. It was probably out of that grief and disappointment that I decided that one day, if I had the opportunity, I would run for office. And I did. And one of the reasons I was able to be 
competitive was because of all of the things I had learned in working for him and the other good people that uh, taught me along that way. You also worked for Barbara Mikulski early on in your career, right? I did. In fact, I approached Barbara's campaign, Congresswoman then, Mikulski campaign, uh, with the primary motive being to make friends for Gary Hart and to share our lists and to keep our people active in Maryland if they wanted to be active in her campaign. I found myself after a few minutes realizing that I was being interviewed for the field director job. (laughs) And I told Wendy Sherman, who was the campaign manager, Wendy, who went on to become deputy secretary of state under Madeleine Albright and the big North Korean negotiator. And I said, Wendy, I'm not interested in a job. I'm in law school. Um, That's all I can do. I'm a slow reader to keep up with studies. And she kept asking me the questions. And I suppose maybe like a lot of jobs you don't want, it's the ones that want you the most. And I was very grateful in hindsight I had. It was a total immersion for this Montgomery County kid who grew up in the Washington suburbs to have worked for Senator Mikulski in Baltimore and out of Baltimore and all around the state. Uh, I felt more at home after that campaign in Baltimore in just six months than I ever did growing up in the Washington suburbs. And I've made a lot of friends on that campaign and was honored to have been able to help elect the first woman to the United States Senate elected in her own right. It's pretty amazing. What was the circumstance of your life when you sought that first, uh, I guess, city council in in Baltimore? It was actually Uh state senate. What what was it? I was two years in the state's attorney's office for Baltimore City. So I was in district court, not circuit court. I would have liked to have done jury trials. I really thought I could be a virtuoso, (laughs) uh, you know, a trial attorney in front of a jury. And my father had been a lawyer. I mean, of, of the six of us growing up, the four boys in the family all became lawyers. So that gives you a sense of you know, the imprint he had and of his example. But there was not a lot of upward movement in the state's attorney's office. It was a fairly calcified and place where people came and they did not leave. And I saw that it would be years and years before I would have a shot at going to circuit court and doing jury trials. And in the meantime, you know, 1990, the governor's race was up and also uh, the whole legislature And the area in which I was living was Northeast Baltimore. And I knew the senator there. And I knew at that time in his political life, and he and I are friends now and I respect him. I knew at that point in his life, he was, shall we say, not as uh, diligent in his duties, either in the district or in the legislature. And in fact, had the worst attendance record of any state senator in the legislature, although he was a household name. So I told my wife, I'm sorry, I told my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, that I wanted to run against him and I thought I could beat him. To which my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, Katie, said, you have no idea what you're up against. This guy is going to beat you like a drum. And I said, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think I can take him. So in one week in April, I uh, bought a house, I quit my job, and announced for state senate and started knocking on doors full time. From that point on, I had called prior to that time, every friend I'd ever had in my life and said, look, I need to raise 10000 right out of the gate. And I need to know that you'll be there for me with $50 of it or $100 of it at the moment I announce. And at the end of the day, after a long, hard fought campaign, they tell me I lost by 22 votes on the absentee ballots out of 10,000 cast. It was only in hindsight that I realized that that loss was the best thing that ever happened to me because it steered me unwittingly Uh, to municipal service and service on the Baltimore City Council. The following year, a seat opened up roughly in that same district until they redistricted it and took a lot of our stronger precincts away. But if I had not lost that first race, I wouldn't have gone on the city council. And I served on the city council for two terms and then thought I had done my tour of duty. I had little kids. My wife uh, kept pointing out that I wasn't making any money or spending any time at home. And so I moved my law practice out to Baltimore County, thought I was done with politics. And then nobody who could do what needed to be done for Baltimore at that time would run for mayor. And uh, so I did against two far more popular African-American candidates. And after a long, hard-fought campaign, we ended up winning every single council district in the city under the promise that if you vote for me, together we'll make our city a safer place. And we did. What did you learn in the city council that you brought to the mayor's office? 
I learn many things. As I travel around the country now and encourage would-be new candidates to run, I, I, I'm, I'm constantly kind of reinforcing the truth that city service and city governing are really exciting places to be right now. Uh, the best governing that's going on in America, that embracing of common platforms, performance management, the internet of things, sensors, predictive analytics, all of that stuff is happening in cities, much more so than in states yet. So what did I learn on the city council? I learned uh, a lot about how that corporation called the Marin City Council of Baltimore operates. I also went through a bit of an evolution, if you, if you give me a couple seconds here to explain it. Part of what compelled me to run for office was my frustration as a prosecutor that it seemed like we were seeing the same sad cases and the same offenders day in and day out, and yet the root causes remained unaddressed. And I thought, you know what? If I were in office, understanding what I now understand, my last you know, assignment was the Western District in, in Baltimore that you see all the TV shows and, and movies made about. So I was doing 70, 80 cases a day, and a lot of sadness in that courtroom, and a lot of futility, it seemed, and frustration and wasted lives. And I thought, man, if I could be in elective office, I could work on improving education, public health, availability of drug treatment, jobs, housing. And if we only worked on those things, then we wouldn't have this problem that we have with crime. After about three years on the city council, as crime continued to rise, one year bearing almost, I, mean, I think it was 352 in 1995, mostly young, poor black men in our city dying violent deaths needlessly. I came to the conclusion, along with a couple other people on the city council, that until we actually made our city a safer place, we could not hope to get traction on housing, jobs, and education, let alone stabilizing the population loss, which at that time was the most rapid 30-year loss of population of any major city in America, uh, worse even than Detroit. And so on the city council, I started to come to understand policing and public safety issues, criminal justice issues, better than anyone else on the council. And I also came to notice what they were choosing to make happen in New York City with Comstat, uh, goal-oriented community policing, a new way of governing that really policing in America has been at the cutting edge of. So you took that to the mayor's office. Took it to the people first. Yes. And then they, they took they, it to they, the mayor's yeah, office. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We had two booklets that year and that summer. I announced with only 88 days to go. One of my opponents had 86% name recognition because he was the council president, Lawrence Bell. In fact, he had been my ally. We worked together on crime issues, and he won only two districts when he was elected council president, his and mine. So he had 86% name recognition. Carl Stokes on the east side, who had run for council president, he had 80% name recognition, and I was the first choice of a whopping 7% of my neighbors, and that's when I knew I had them. <laughs> but we announced on a so-called drug-free zone corner, which was a euphemism at the time for open-air drug market <laughs> in my district. And about a week later, we unveiled our first public policy little booklet. And the first booklet was how to improve public safety in Baltimore. And that was followed 10 days later by a booklet on everything else. And I said, vote for me. And within six months, 10 of these open-air drug markets, which had been such a locus, a concentration of shootings and robberies and murders year in and year out, 10 of these open-air drug markets uh, will be things of our past. And a safer Baltimore will be the future we make for all of our kids. So we took it to the people first. And there wasn't a single day, Nathaniel, that went by given the intertwined nature of law enforcement and race in America, when we didn't have conversations, very tough but honest conversations, like how are you going to shut down open-air drug markets without you know, unleashing uh, brutal white or racist policing on poor neighborhoods? And uh, that, too, was part of the plan, as was greatly increasing drug treatment, and its availability, which we did, and also intervening earlier in the lives of young people who were being muled and shot and used by drug gangs. It's a pretty old-fashioned way of running for office to run on policy. <laughs> <laughs> you mean to talk to the people ahead of time? And, and to actually have something that you want to make happen. 
that is substantive and aiming to improve their lives. Yeah. And people found it refreshing. You know what else they found refreshing was the vulnerability of it. I mean, they looked at the time before President Obama's historic you know, victory as president. There weren't many places where white people were elected to lead black cities anywhere. It's become less uncommon now. Um, think in Detroit. I know that Francis Slay also was part of that demographically challenged caucus. Uh, what led you to feel comfortable enough with African-Americans to say to them, I can, I can run your city. I'm the right person to help out. Sometimes it's mm. hard to work across yeah. racial lines like that. Yeah, probably the, um, probably the love and example of my parents, first and foremost. I remember as a, as a boy once watching the evening news and my father saying, if I had been born young and poor and black in America, they would have had to lock me up for a long time because there would have been no controlling my rage. That makes an impression on a, on a person's heart. More in terms of my own experience, I mean, I guess my council district was majority African-American. When I was a prosecutor and in the Western District, everybody showing up for court, victims, defendants, witnesses were, were African-American. And I suppose having worked on campaigns for, you know, for Barbara Mikulski in Maryland, where we have such a large and diverse African-American populations, we should say. Sometimes white people talk about you know, in monolithic terms. I suppose all of those things helped me. The biggest baggage I needed to shred, or shed rather, was my conclusion and looking at when I was evaluating whether or not to make that race. You know, at the last minute, Kwaisi Mfume, who we all thought was the front runner and was going to win, popular, headed NAACP, former congressman from Baltimore. We all thought he was going to run, and he had pretty much everybody lined up to support him. And when he didn't, that's when I started seriously thinking about running, partly, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, I knew both of the other two candidates, and I knew in ways that others who didn't have the honor to work on the city council knew uh, that neither of them was up for doing what needed to be done. And so I really had to sh disabuse myself of the notion that um, because I was white, that the majority African-American voters of my city could not be fair in exercising their franchise. It was kind of a reverse racism, you know? So once I realized that for what it was and held it up, called it out and got rid of it, then I was able to run with a, with a vulnerability and an honesty and a clarity of purpose that I think voters found refreshing. One of the th interesting things about politics is it's sometimes a meeting place for people who don't meet otherwise. Like I was talking to Tommy Wells, who's a white city councilman or was in, in DC, mm -hmm. and he would talk about how he had to govern with people, you know, of different races and mm. neighborhoods and so on. And that, and that was like, in some ways, one of the one places where they came together in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm, as you say that I'm, I'm recalling as a freshman council person our, in a very experienced professional, you know, career civil servant, uh, Ron Schultz, who staffed the city council. And he said, you know, one of the things I think you'll find very cool about this place is, is that very fact that it's an integrated work environment where people every day have to work together and understand different perspectives, often born of, of race and culture and, and injustices past and present. I'm sure you've done, answered this question before, but if you had to cite one thing that you took from being mayor, that one accomplishment or one failure, what, what is the thing that you remember most about your time running the city? Wow. The... The reason I was elected was to make Baltimore a safer city and not only to improve policing, but improve how we police the police and also to expand drug treatment and intervene earlier in the lives of young people. We did all of those things. We never had all of the authority to control the various public safety assets, many of which were headed by independently elected officials or controlled by the state of Maryland. But we did put our city on a path for achieving the largest reduction in part one crime of any major city in America over those next 10 years. I'm going to assume part one crime is 
Oh, I'm sorry. Most serious crime. Yeah, yeah. it's the most serious. The, the FBI uh, has uh, the standard definitions that they make every jurisdiction report. The part one is the combination of violent crime, murder, rape, robbery, arson, and property crime, burglary, auto theft, and the like. Ag assault's another one. So we had the largest reduction. Second and and third to us, by the way, were New York and Los Angeles. And how much of that was policy and how much of that was other factors? Yeah, it's funny. You know, especially we, if if I might say, we liberals, we progressives, when it comes to public safety, we're very quick to look for every and any reason other than improved policing to explain why public safety's been improved or stated differently, why crime has been driven down. But if you listen to our language on that, you won't usually hear active verbs. We'll talk about it more like a weather event, as if it's barometric pressure. Crime is down. (laughs) Not that it's been driven down by better deployments, guided by timely and accurate intelligence shared by all, or more effective tactics or strategies, or by solving more crimes, by forcing people to come together in a cadence of accountability to be able to uh, recognize patterns and to uh, spare especially poor people becoming repeat victims again and again and again. So, you know, L.A. and Baltimore and New York are very different American cities. And yet those cities were the three from the years 2000 to 2009 that achieved the biggest reductions of crime. And the common thread, I would submit, that ran through each of them was an embracing and an honest and robust practicing of this new way of governing, new way of policing, performance measured, common platforms, open and transparent. And part of what's required in each of those places during those 10 years was also a political commitment by leaders to do what? To actually declare goals with deadlines, but also to hold the police accountable to implement things like civilian review, to do reverse integrity stings, to make sure that you actually keep your internal affairs division staffed up at 5% of your sworn force instead of looking the other way as it's cleared out in order to put more officers on the street uh, when in truth of the matter is, you know, sometimes the motive for that is just to avoid the embarrassment of catching police officers, the few, when they do bad things. You have to do that. If there's one thing I learned from my experience, I think, uh, in the hindsight of these last 15, 18 years, especially with the uh, unrest after Freddie Gray and Eric Garner and all and, and uh, the shooting of black suspects, it is that you cannot improve or create sustainable improvements in public safety unless you're also very openly, transparently, and demonstrably and intentionally addressing issues of police professionalism courtesy, excessive force, you know, use of lethal force. You have to do both sides of that at the same time, not just public safety, public safety and improving public trust and policing. And you can only do that by actually improving the professionalism and courtesy of your force. So what led you to run for the, for the governorship of your state? Yeah. You know, I passed on it in 2002. I was only a couple of years into uh, the office of mayor. And then, you know, there's probably no more hopeful coin in the realm than a freshly minted mayor. So as people put my name into polls and the like, I mean, we were, we had been able to do things that people thought were, wouldn't have been possible. The Baltimore Sun didn't endorse me in any race. They said that my commitment to reduce crime was kind of pie in the sky and demagoguery and nobody can ever reduce crime. They used to print a, a uh, like a chalk on pavement outline on the front of the newspaper next to where the weather was on the left-hand side. They'd have chalk man on the right-hand side. They'd put the number of homicides on a year-to-date basis this year. And on chalk man's lifeless right arm, the number of homicides year-to-date this year, last year to this year. And they were going to hold me accountable to what they thought was an impossibility of reducing crime in Baltimore. But at the end of that first year, for the first time in 20 years, we actually reduced our homicide number below 300. 
And we had even more impressive reductions in, you know, aggravated assaults and armed robberies and things. And also at the end of that year, for the first time ever, our first graders, I think, scored above the national average in reading and math. The city had become a visibly, had been made a visibly cleaner place. And uh, lo and behold, the Ravens won the Super Bowl. (laughs) So I was riding pretty high, but I in the eyes of the public yeah. uh, who probably gave me credit, partial credit for the Ravens victory. But I passed on running for governor then. I did not pass four years later because over the course of those next four years, pushing the rock of city progress up the hill became that much harder because the Republican incumbent governor, Bob Ehrlich, had his eyes pretty well fixed in the rearview mirror and either actively or passively went out of his way to either belittle city's progress or undermine it by not being a, a legitimate partner in the tough things that we had to do. Uh, so one of the two of us had to go, Nathaniel, <laughs> and the people decided it would be him. And tell me a little about being governor of Maryland. Yeah, Maryland is a state that's almost a mashup of five or six different regions. It's been called American miniature for a long time, and it's for a good reason. I mean, the Prince George's probably has more in common with Atlanta Uh, in many ways than it does with Montgomery County, which has more in common with Sacramento, California than it does with Baltimore. And then you have Eastern Shore, which in some ways you feel more like you're maybe in part of Tidewater, North Carolina, and uh, Western Maryland, where you feel like you're in Western Pennsylvania, and they root for the the Steelers. So it was a great honor. And I also am, am grateful that I was able to serve at a time when my people really, really needed good leadership because unbeknownst to any of us, we were heading into the Great Recession, and uh, any jackass can govern when times are easy. But um, you really have to be on your chops if you're going to lead your state through a recession and bring her out on the other side of that storm in a stronger condition than she went into it. And that's what we did. First time ever, we made our schools the number one public schools in America in five years in a row. We were one of only seven to keep a AAA bond rating. We reduced our incarceration rate to 20-year lows, even as we reduced crime to 35-year lows and, uh, you know, held the line on college tuition. In fact, did a better job than any other state at going 0% increase in college tuition those years. Repealed the death penalty, passed marriage equality, passed comprehensive gun safety legislation. You won't find another state anywhere in the United States that accomplished as many progressive things or achieved as many uh, progressive goals as we did in those eight years. And uh, I wouldn't trade them for anything, although they were very hard. My experience is that leadership is very difficult. It's hard to be good at it. It's something you have to keep working on yourself and choosing good people around you. But what is what do you think are the secrets yeah, to, to being a good leader? I'm writing a book right now with uh, Esri Press, and it's kind of a, it's a combination of leadership and management in the information age, that alchemy that makes for good governance. Ed Rendell gave me some great advice when I was first elected mayor. He was sort of a, he kindly allowed himself to become a mentor to me. He said, look, everybody's trying to put information in your ear and give you advice. I'm not going to give you any more advice unless you ask for it, but here's my two bits of advice. Number one, surround yourself with really good people, the best you can find. And hopefully, they're all a lot smarter about what you're hiring them to do than you are. Your job is not to be the smartest person in the room. It's to pull together the smartest people you possibly can. Second bit of advice, he said, make every decision as if you're not running for re-election. And what you'll find is that not only will your batting average go up for making those difficult decisions, and most of them are difficult once they get to you, he said, but people will come to respect the fact that that's how you're making those decisions. So in addition to those rules, which I always did my best to follow, I think another rule for governing in the information age especially is that you have to have a radical commitment to openness and transparency. In other words, it's a bad time to try to be a control freak and hold the information. The old rules of politics say that political leaders who have to run for re-election should never declare goals with deadlines. Because if you don't hit them, then you get roughed up. In the information age, leaders realize, provided you're doing the actions and bringing people together to get things done, 
declaring a goal with a deadline is part of the integrity and the trust required in order to uh, move a freely, you know, a self-governing people forward in order to motivate the bureaucracy. So um, on the leadership front, I think um, the successful leaders I see around the country are those that are willing to set goals with deadlines, but also have the discipline to bring people together in a regular cadence of accountability, collaborative circles where things get done on the basis of because I can show you it's working rather than the old way of barking from the top of the pyramid of command and control to just do it because I told you to do it. So uh, it's exciting to see. It's, it's, uh, we've never had better tools for governing ourselves. The question is, will we have the leadership that knows how to use them? You know, what, what you're saying really resonates with me, and it is so much in contrast with the way that we're being governed out of the White House right now. Oh, yeah. And I know the next office you saw it, as I watched every debate. And, Did and, you? And, uh, you found them. <laughs> yes. Uh, there weren't many. Uh, and I watched uh, the campaign very tightly on both sides with my daughters, and it was a uh, very intense election cycle, and you were right there in the middle of it, to the degree that you were noticed. Talk about your choice to run, what you experienced along the way. And I have other questions like, what did you think of how the media covered that? Because I was pretty angry along the way. Yeah, sure. I I had been traveling around the country helping other Democrats, which is something I was, you know, I fell into a rhythm of doing when I was first elected governor. I mean, I was always part of the leadership of the Democratic Governors Association. I suppose, given the proximity to Washington, part of that motivation was it was a little easier for me than some of the other governors to be active and, and involved. And I am a big D, big P Democratic Party guy. I believe that me the too. Democratic Party is a, is a critically vital, important, essential organization for American progress. And so uh, I had been traveling around the country, though, in the lead up to the presidential race. I was coming to the end of my two terms as governor. And I came home from that for, after being out on the road and uh, you know, giving the party address at JJ's or speaking on behalf of and campaigning for other candidates. And I told my wife, I said, you know what? I, I don't think Hillary can win the general. And she said, you don't know that. You don't know who they're going to put up. I said no, I actually have a really good gut sense. If this is the attitude within the first circle of the Democratic Party, maybe not necessarily the the concentrated wealth circle of the Democratic Party, but if this is the first circle of active Democrats, I said, she can't win the general. And I can't, I can't not try when I feel in my gut, when I know as well as I could know anything in my gut, that she won't be able to win the general. And so I ran and uh, gave it all I had. So much about politics is timing. Shortly after the announcement, I mean, we quickly realized that we were running in a year of anger, rage, and retribution, the animating emotion in the country and in both parties was anger, rage, and retribution. I heard Al Gore say after the Actually, it was still during the campaign. He said that one of the more insightful interviews he saw was a man on the street interview where a blue-collar, white, male, Democrat, lifelong, was asked how he could be supporting Donald Trump. And the man said, well, the way I see it, our country's got cancer, and Donald Trump's just the chemotherapy we need. So when people believe that their own country's leaders in both parties are no longer on their side, then voting becomes strictly an act of protest. And people were almost agnostic as to whether they were handed a flamethrower or whether they were handed a sledgehammer. What they knew for sure was it wasn't working for them. They're working harder, falling further behind. They saw a lot of people who helped wreck our country's economy, the big banks, actually restoring all their bonuses And meanwhile, people were making less than they had before. Their kids were looking at lesser prospects than they had before. And I found ourselves between, you know, a rock and an angry place. And I could not open enough oxygen in order to even make my case. Before the debates, before any voters had the chance to to cast a vote, they would tell us from the networks, Hillary will get 50% of the questions. 
Bernie will get 40% of the questions and you'll get 10% of the questions. And that's just the way it was. The Democratic Party uh, seemed to be okay with that from an institutional standpoint, as they were okay with only having four debates and having three of them hidden behind things like the Christmas specials or Saturday nights or NFL games. And it's too bad. And I hope we've learned from that. I think we'll be much better served next time as a party by allowing voters to to hear uh, the experiences, vision, and and qualifications of a of a broad spectrum of candidates. What did you think of the other two candidates you ran against? You know, I like them both. I respect them and and admire their their lifetimes of public service. I had supported Hillary Clinton in two thousand and eight. Uh, I didn't know Senator Sanders at all, really, until we found ourselves both in that contest, and then we'd see each other at things or backstage and debates. And uh, I found him. You know, as time went on, we actually became friendlier, and I appreciated his ability to kind of see the the humor, even in the intensity of the moment. It was a great honor. Look, very few people ever are able to run for president of the United States. I'm proud of the substance and the policy we put forward, much of which made it into the most progressive democratic platform, the commitment to 100% renewable energy grid by 2020, the death penalty and repealing the death penalty. That had never been there before, not to mention the way we drove the gun safety debate during those first few debates and also a better and more, uh, I think, a more generous uh, and compassionate conversation about immigration and the need for immigration reform. I'm proud of all of those things. I only wish that we could have broken threshold in Iowa and spared our country what we're going through right now. You think you would have won it if we awarded you the nomination? Yes, absolutely I do. You going to do it again? I might. I haven't made that decision. The only thing I know for sure and what feels like the, the right thing to do right now is to help other people in these midterms. We have to win back our states if we're going to govern the United States again. And as a party, shame on us. We didn't act like a party in 2010. We went from having 30 Democratic governors to only having 20. We've lost more state houses, more state local elections and county elections than ever before. And we need to rebuild, man. Uh, And the good news is, as I've traveled around the country, I am seeing about a 15 to 20 point swing with our candidates winning. I think now the latest count was, I think, what, 39 out of 45 special elections for state legislature or state house, sometimes in very so-called red districts where we had no business of even competing. In Oklahoma, we have flipped five of the seven seats. So that's what I'm throwing my energy into. And I'll make a decision about whether or not to run again myself in the fullness of time. Uh, and I know that time is approaching. What do you think the characteristics are of someone that we should nominate? There's an awful lot of Democrats thinking about it with lots of different strengths and weaknesses. What do you think we need, especially post-Trump? Because we're going to need a lot of repair. From my perspective, And we're a party with a lot of diverse perspectives, which is what makes us strong. From my perspective, as we're treated every week to the spectacle of the Trump White House, uh, nominees who didn't go through basic vetting or who haven't even the basic skill set to run big departments, some of them like, like Mr. Pruitt or... Betsy DeVos have spent a career talking about dismantling the very public institutions they've been put in charge of. I think it was Herbert Hoover who had the line, a chicken in every pot. Donald Trump with his cabinet appointments is like a fox in every hen house. Uh, So there will come a time when the American people, in fact, perhaps that time is here, are going to rise up and demand to know what happened to their government. And they're going to, I believe, be looking for someone that can actually govern and that actually has a track record of pulling people together and in a collaborative way to get difficult things done. And I think that's what we need to to look for as a sharp contrast to Donald Trump. Going all the way back in your career to that first time in Iowa with Hart, you've watched the process by which we choose a president. Do you think we have that process anywhere near right in our party? And what would you and how can we get it right so that we do pick the right type of person to lead. I mean, look, I Hillary had won the popular vote. You were almost wrong, and I think probably would have won the general election, but for a whole lot of uh, events mm. and interferences. Yeah, and a lot of us get 
get tired of going back and doing the postmortem on that. I, I was in 22 states for Secretary Clinton. In fact, I was in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ohio more for her than she was there for her. Now, we got caucuses, still primary schedule that's odd in, in what states come first and have such a huge role in picking who can win. Is there anything that can be done between now and then to make it a better system, do you think? I sure hope so. I taught at Boston College at their law school last year, and they asked me to give a talk, the title of which was prescribed, Restoring the Integrity of Our Democracy. And so there's a kind of a short list of things that I believe we should do, and I think a lot of, a lot of people would agree, and, and maybe an even shorter list that some people don't see yet, but that I have. On the larger list, we need to overturn Citizens United, and we need to at least start calling the question in every state we possibly can. In a similar vein, we should make the right to vote a constitutional right, and we should call the question in every state and every state legislature we can. When you say call the question, what does that mean exactly? I mean, put forward resolutions. Ask the state legislatures to, uh, you know, to begin the process of creating a constitutional amendment. We've seen oftentimes in the recent past these baloney wedge issues come out, you know, whether it's flag burning or whatever the latest one is that comes down the pike. And yet as Democrats, we don't call the question on matters of principle, like that corporations are not people or uh, that Americans should have a constitutional right to vote and Republican governors shouldn't be able to put up these barriers to have to stand on your head, gargle peanut butter, you know, spit nickels and whistle Dixie in order to get a registration card. Our state was the first state to vote to do away with the Electoral College. You mentioned that, the fact that Hillary had won the popular vote but lost the election because of the Electoral College. Uh, Maryland became the first state that said, once we get to a majority of states with a majority of electors committing to the popular vote, uh, that's the way our votes will go. And a number of them follow. What are they up to now? 18 or 17? Something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. One that... Um, I think we need to leave behind us as an antique vestige that no longer serves our common good, uh, the partisan motive, gerrymandered congressional districts. I say that without clean hands. Uh, I pushed back as hard as we could in Maryland uh, against what we saw happening around the country. And uh, hopefully more and more states will move to nonpartisan redistricting commissions. But there's another piece of this, too, that we haven't gotten into too much. Uh, back during the Reagan years, we did away with the fairness doctrine when it comes to network coverage of our campaigns. And there has been a steady slide away from fairness in our discourse into infotainment, the lifting up of those candidates who provide the greatest entertainment and agitational value rather than... Uh, having a, a debate that's more in keeping with what most Americans see, which is the final ones governed by you know, the presidential commission, equal time, back and forth. At this rate, I mean, one could foresee the next primary debates becoming something that looks a lot more like Hollywood squares than it does like a presidential debate. And I think it's a deep, deep problem for our democracy. You know, Orwell saw a future where the things we hate would destroy us, those that want to control information and burn books. Aldous Huxley saw that what we love would destroy us, our desire to be entertained, that we'd be awash in a sea of triviality. We need to wrestle back our, the formats of our primary debates from the rating gods of the infotainment industry. I saw a calculation that the free press awarded to Trump was in the billions. And oh, a lot yeah. of that was because he created a spectacle on a daily mm -hmm. basis. He starts out on an escalator. He presses racial buttons. He, he, you know what he did. Does it tempt you to try to be more spectacular? Not if it means being a fascist. <laughs> um, and how do we beat a guy like that who can somehow pull attention to himself? It, doesn't it seem like we need, as a candidate, someone who can stand face to face and not be wilted by a nickname or bullied out of out of equality or superiority yeah the look well 
what I've learned in confronting bullies is that you you have to you have to pop them in the in the nose. You just can't hope they'll go away. Well, but I mean, every time someone tried to pop him, like Rubio, they they seemed like they took the damage onto themselves. And looked like fools. Now he didn't do a great job of it. But yeah, you got to do a couple things at once. I mean, it's, you've, in a fight, you got to be able to jab and also deliver the the right. You have to be able to speak to the larger story that trivializes the mean spiritedness or the entertainment value or the fascist appeals. And that's one thing we haven't yet done very well as a party. And I lump myself into that category of democratic leaders who have not yet done a good job of articulating the truer story of where our country can and should be headed. I mean, we should be winning this third industrial revolution, and instead we're stumbling backwards into it. Our economy is not money, it's people. And we American capitalism can actually work pretty well if we put people at the center of it. There are some who believe that we are headed to 30 years of billionaire celebrity candidates. There are some even very wealthy people in the Democratic Party who would like to be spared the work, perhaps, of... Um, having to get involved in a campaign and doing the heavy lift and instead would prefer that somebody with instant celebrity and billionaire money of their own would just get in and do it. You're seeing in a number of states, in fact, some people just saying, hey, I've got money. It's my own money. I'm going to run. Well, that's not democracy. Uh, that's, I'm not saying that those individuals don't have the right to, to run. But if you follow that trend line, it's not many years ahead when we become an oligarchy when the only people that can be elected leaders are those that have a great deal of personal wealth, personal money, or celebrity to bring to the equation. And I think we would become a lesser and poorer uh, republic for it. One of the things I've tracked really closely since the Trump election is a huge flowering of what I call political entrepreneurship. Tons of new groups, other groups that have grown. And what are you seeing there? What do you admire? What, what do you think the role of these groups might be going forward. Yeah, I think it's a very positive development. I have likened it to, uh, you know, the sort of regeneration that you see in a forest after a really devastating fire. When Tom Perez kindly asked me for, for whatever advice I might have when he was made the Democratic Party chair, I said, Tom, there are so many good people that are being motivated to become much more involved than they ever have before. Just allow it. You know, to get yourself out of the mindset that this has to be some centrally controlled operation with one short little script. So I'm seeing groups like Indivisible, Every District, Sister District, and I bump the, into them coming together in different uh, ways around different men and women, you know, depending on the strengths that they bring. Uh, Seth Moulton's group that supports uh, veterans across the country, my own group, Win Back Your State, that focuses on people that are usually first-time candidates running to win election to state house and state senate races. So, you know, nature achieves stability and progress through diversity. Ideologues believe the opposite. I think this new Democratic Party is going to be a much more distributed party. Now, probably not unlike the movement we see in the economy or energy or health or information or other things, uh, 3D printing. Uh, I'm not saying that every uh, every indivisible group can pull out a 3D printer and create the avatar perfect candidate. But what I am saying is that in a time when trust in national institutions is so low, perhaps we should welcome uh, those groups that are more locally based where the trust is greater and perhaps the output in terms of citizen effort will be greater because they people feel they're more connected and more closely connected. I think that's a good thing. The other fascinating thing I see going on at, uh, across our country is that we uh, Donald Trump has been a phenomenal tool for candidate recruitment. We have a lot of really good people running. Now, some of them in this first go-round might be, you know, shooting a little high for their first race, you know, as I did myself when I ran for state senate when uh, and I got elected the next year, though, to the city council. So, But I think this class that has been motivated to come out of their own homes and go knock on the doors of others are going to regenerate this party and also our country. 
He has also been a tremendous catalyst for the attitudes of our young people, among whom you will rarely find climate deniers, immigrant bashers, or people that want to deny rights to gay couples or their kids. So all of that's very, very positive. Uh, uh, we need, as a party, to uh, pull up from the ground truth, if you will, that message that is broad, thematic, and inclusive, and I believe it is opportunity for all, that our party stands for opportunity for all, that in order for our republic to have any justification for being and working to make ourselves a more genuine democracy socially, politically, and economically. You mentioned the advice you gave to Chairman Perez. Do you think that that advice is being taken? Do you think that the party is making the right moves right now? I hope so. I, I, I mean, if, if one is to judge by the number of special elections that yeah. we've won. But that may be, it may just be that people are swinging the other way right now because they don't like what they're seeing. Well, I think there is a big part of that. Yeah. yeah, but it's also important that the party stay the hell out of its way. I mean, I'll turn the question back to you, Nathaniel. I mean, what's the test of whether the party's doing the right thing? Is it to get applause for the message or is it to win elections? I think winning the elections is the important thing. I was honored to be able to go out and campaign for Connor Lamb in Western Pennsylvania. He was not as, you know, uh, among the the things that you would look at on on some issues like gun safety. I mean, he and I had a disagreement. I think we should ban combat assault weapons. He was not in favor of a ban on combat assault weapons, but by gosh, he was for universal background checks, keeping guns out of the hands of, of dangerous people and criminals and was far better than his opponent. So, And he won in a district that uh, many said could not be won. So um, I think the party is actually doing very well right now out there. And uh, I think the party apparatus will eventually catch up with where the grassroots is taking us. Can you tell me a little bit about your own group, which you, you mentioned, Win Back Your State and what you're up to and, and who you're seeing out there that, that you're supporting? Yeah, gladly. I have been probably now, I think, in 25 states for 40 different candidates since Donald Trump's election. And so we have recommitted my leadership effort to a, a new pack called Win Back Your State. And our belief is that we have to win back our individual states if we're going to save the United States. And I've seen so many very uh, inspiring uh, stories out there all around the country. Let me just touch on a couple. About probably three weeks after Donald Trump's election, I went over to Delaware for a woman named Stephanie Hansen. And there was a special election in that seat, and its outcome would determine whether or not their state Senate went Democratic or stayed Democratic, or whether it flipped Republican. And man, on a very cold Saturday morning, she had, must have had 350 labor union members, moms, dads, teachers, volunteers packed into her headquarters. They had hoped that she would hold it by uh, four points, I think, which was what the margin had been before. She won not by four, not by eight, not by 12, but by 16. Mankra Dengra in Washington state, opposite side of the country. The outcome of that election would determine whether their state Senate flip from Republican to Democratic. They dumped $6 million on her head with all of the, you know, the, the sort of ads that you might imagine, the insinuation, not like us, you know, with her immigrant parents and her name that, uh, you know, is, is not like ours, all of that sort of anti-immigrant stuff. And she ended up marching through with a very healthy margin uh, and flipped that Senate to uh, Democratic. I went out to Oklahoma for a woman named Allison Eichley Freeman. She was running for the first time for Senate in Oklahoma. They've had a lot of special elections in Oklahoma. Allison Eichley Freeman, until three years ago, was homeless. She is now a counselor in a mental health clinic. She is a lesbian mother of three running for the first time for a Senate district that Donald Trump won by 40 points. Her wife is African-American. And she won by 44 votes. We have won five of the seven special elections in Oklahoma, which had the largest margin for Donald Trump of any state in the union. Annette Tadio down in uh, Florida, uh, Kevin Kavanaugh in Manchester, New Hampshire. I mean, I could go on and on. We are winning, and the swing is about a 15 to 20 point swing. Each of these individual candidates, of course, you know, when I I come in, we do a fundraiser, we knock on doors with them, get them in the local press and on TV, and I pull them aside for my two minutes of courtesy payback 
And I say, what are you hearing? What are you saying? And what all of them tell me is that they learn very quickly, never, ever bring up Donald Trump's name. People are sick of him. It's like 24-7 political pornography. I used to say that metaphorically. Now we can say it literally on some news cycles. They're sick of him. Candidates learn that what people want is for you to talk about us. Talk about me and my family. Talk about the issues we care about around the kitchen table. Yes, it's healthcare. Yes, it's jobs. Yes, it's more affordable college. But it's also something deeper on an intuitive level. And that is, tell us we're good people, that we can still work on our problems together, and that you're going to be there for me. And you're not going to be one of those politicians that vanishes after the election. It's those messages of solidarity that we're all in this together and that we've got to attack our problems and not each other that are really resonating around the country. And our men and women are carrying that message and doing it in a very up-close, personal way in their own communities. People know that they can't fix what we've done to ourselves nationally, but they do know that they can make better in their own places, in their own states. And that's what's happening. I, I, I see it too, and I am excited about it. I also see success of a alternative message, which is much more divisive. It clearly worked on the national level. It wor- it's working in some parts of the country. And we also have this huge problem of so many people being in their partisan bubbles and not thinking about the national interest or the best interest, the local interest. How do, how do we cure this kind of sickness that's in the in the body politic or in the conversation right now. Yeah. Well, it's up to all of us. I mean, how many of us have, you know, went to our own family gatherings over the last holidays and warned our spouses, don't bring up politics with uncle Bob or, (laughs) or whoever it is in the family. Sometimes when I talk to dear friends of mine, you know, I figure out pretty quickly if we've talk about politics that their primary news source is Fox and mine is not. And it's hard to find a way across that, that chasm, all of the talking points. I do think that there is an opportunity here against the malignant narcissism and the malice, you know, mitigated only by incompetence. That is the Trump administration for us to, to lift up the national interest and actually to have a larger conversation. Right now, the first step of that is a very local conversation on a state-by-state basis. But you know what? Man, that's okay. That's why we're the United States. I mean, there are lots of times in our country's history where we found a way forward in individual states before we found a way forward as a nation. I mean, even recently, you look at marriage equality, and that was an issue many people thought would never change. And yet, young people were sort of the the salt of of the earth that that allowed for a different conversation. So I do believe that we have to lift up the national interest. I I also believe that one of the powerful words out there that people are yearning to hear is that, that word dignity that talks about not only the dignity of every person, but the dignity of work and the dignity that we share together as a people for all of our differences of opinion. There's been a lot of damage done to, to that, uh, American dignity under this presidency. And uh, I don't see any signs that uh, there's going to be some some great conversion in, in his attitude. But I do see signs that we're, that there is a changing and a shifting in ours. The mood has definitely shifted uh, from one of anger, rage, and retribution to how can we fix and make better? You know, I worried a lot about Trump teaching young people what was acceptable in a in a horrible way but when you said earlier and you noted earlier that 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 is not what really what we're seeing going on they are learning the opposite from him that's very that's very hopeful yeah if you look at climate change i have a friend um, christine sheehan who works at gallup and i was given a talk on climate change how we can get to 100 percent renewable energy and I said, Christine, do you have an update on on the the number? They all, Gallup always asks the question of Americans and and divides it up by uh, age cohort. Do you believe that human activity causes climate change? Only after Donald Trump's election, and for the first time ever, does now every cohort of Americans believe that human activity causes climate change? And among young people, it's eighty five percent. 
So this presidency, as aberrational as it is, has been a very defining moment for young people. You also look at what happened in the special elections in Virginia, where I campaigned, and also New Jersey, where we flipped a number of seats. You saw a pretty big turnout of young people. I don't think you'll see especially young Democrats or young independents ever sitting on the sidelines again and waiting for the perfect candidate to emerge. This was a very painful and rapid maturation process in the the nature of compromise and consensus and democratic progress. I'll be honest, I would like to talk to you about for several days in a row, but I think that I've presumed enough about on your time. Is there anything else you want to say? Anything else I want to say? Yes. There is a, a, a phenomenal goodness in the heart of our country right now that's waiting to be called forward by decent men and women who are willing to go out there and knock on doors and speak to the, the truth of our country and, and, and call forward that goodness. And um, we went for about 240 years before electing somebody like a Donald Trump to the White House would that we never had to make a big mistake like that, but great countries sometimes make bad mistakes. Good people correct them quickly. And I think that's what our country is going to do in these upcoming midterms. Alexander Hamilton in in Federalist 69 wrote that a time would come when we would elect a person essentially who acts in a despotic ways, who enjoys the trust of the people much more than he should. And he said, when that time comes and um, we have a leader that acts like Donald Trump does, we need to hold tight to our public institutions and withstand the temporary delusion. This will look like a short period in, in American history. I think it will be regarded many years from now as the period of involution before a great move forward in evolution of a much more compassionate, generous, and uh, far-seeing nation. I really hope you're right. I worry that that time may last a little longer than your optimism, but I hope you're right. Be not afraid, Nathaniel. (laughs) Believe. Darkness makes a great canvas. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Martin O'Malley in Win Back Your State. He's at winbackyourstate.org. It would be a good idea to support his work. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.